This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of my 2009 conversation with Trudier Harris and the late Noel Polk. The conversation was a preview of a debate on the topic, what was the most influential Southern novel of the 20th century, which aired on SCETV's Take on the South. This encore is a part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. With me in the studio today are two friends and colleagues in Southern Studies. Professor Trudier Harris is J. Carlisle Citizen, Professor of English and Comparative Literature at UNC Chapel Hill. And Dr. Noel Polk is Professor Emeritus, Mississippi State University in Starkville, Mississippi. And first of all, Trudier and Noel, I want to welcome you to the journal. Thank you so much. Thanks it's good very to be much. Here. Our topic today is going to be what was the most influential novel written in the 20th century South? Not about the South, but written by a Southern author. And you both contributed to a list. I'm just briefly going to run down that list for our listeners. The list, and this is in alphabetical order, not in any kind of uh, preference. Uh, Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner, All the King's Men, Robert Penn Warren, Beloved by Toni Morrison, Cain by Gene Toomer, Deliverance by James Dickey, Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell, Invisible Man by Ralph Allison, Look Homeward Angel by Thomas Wolfe, uh, Native Son by Richard Wright, Roots by Alex Haley, The Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman by Ernest J. Gaines, The Klansman by Thomas Dixon, Jr., The Color Purple by Alice Walker, the Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers, The Last Gentleman by Walker Percy, The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner, Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, Tobacco Road by Erskine Caldwell, and Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor. That's quite a selection, range of literature. That include much from the early part of the 20th century. Toomer wrote in the 20s. 1923 is Cain. Is Cain. So that, I think that may be the earliest book on the, on the, the list. The, the Klansman. Uh, I'm sorry, The, the Klansman. Klansman. The Klansman. Yeah. But I've had people call in and say, where's Ellen Glasgow? Where, where is uh, Shirley Ann Grau? I mean, there, there, there are lots of people who might be in here. They're, not, they're also, uh, in terms of contemporary writers, not that many made the list. And this list, by the way, folks, was assembled by... The Southern Studies faculty at USC, six members of the faculty, a variety of disciplines, and with uh, Professor Harris and Professor Polk's input. So it's a pretty broad section of folks who mm-hmm. have read Southern letters from graduate school days to uh, the present. The most influential novel, Southern novel of the 20th century. Trudier, how do you look at the term influential when, you, when you're looking at this list of books? I think there are several ways you can look at it, and we have our different ways of doing so. Influence in terms of who's buying the books, uh, who are, who's reading the books. Influence in terms of how frequently the book may be taught in a particular classroom. Uh, influence, for example, you have Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man on there, and that book just happened to be about 1965, voted what the, the best novel that have been published in the past uh, 20 years or so. So if judgment is being made by a group of editors or reviewers, you have that kind of influence, influence in terms of the general public mm-hmm. who's reading. You know, granting agencies usually refer to the out-of-school adult. What is the out-of-school adult a reading? And also influence in terms of who's responding to your list uh, and who's voluntarily offering up particular titles. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that, and, and uh, it, 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 those kinds of lists uh, and opinions are functions of, of the time and place and uh, maybe what somebody had for breakfast that morning or <laughs> what he or she had, had, had most recently read of, mm-hmm. of, of, of Southern. And uh, I think there's plenty of slippage uh, with the term influence. Mm-hmm. Um, in one way, the uh, uh, Erskine Caldwell uh, has done more to influence the the way American culture re- has read the South over the years uh, than than any other book on that on that list. I, that is, the, you mean you mean the the hillbilly South, the du- the Dukes of Hazard, the Snuffy Smith comic strips, Little Abner. The, the the incest in clay floored cabins, as as Faulkner put it uh, once, that that kind of of uh, thing, poor, uh, ignorant, wisecracking, 
and, and so forth. Yeah. Mal- malnourished. Malnourished. Lazy. So you're talking about in media, media influence, what kind of television shows grow out of uh, particular um, literary ventures or stereotypes? or. Sh- uh, sure. I, I, I think that, that Caldwell's Tobacco Road and, and um, uh, God's Little Acre, God's Little Acre uh, probably did a lot to set a tone uh, uh, for the way we actually have seen the South mm-hmm. over, over the years, especially early on. Well, but, I mean, of, course, of course, you've got it since that we're talking about media <laughs> influence, the counterbalance to the Tobacco Road South is Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind South. Um, I mean, both Hollywood stereotypes, right? I mean, right. absolutely. To some extent, yeah. It's a great romantic love affair with things Southern, a great nostalgia uh, for days gone by. I think that keeps uh, Gone with the Wind uh, afloat. I mean, um, the North Carolina affair, you can go in and get into your 19th century Southern Belle kind of garb with the floppy hat, uh, with the, uh, <laughs> the those images that Margaret Mitchell put forth in, in Gone with the Wind. And I think there's a sort of longing for those good old times when... And folks could sit around and have their mint juleps brought to them and their lands worked and they didn't have to worry about a whole lot. And even when they did, there were ways that they could imagine those good old days coming again. We are all more or less of the same generation. So at least we knew that film was around. In the 21st century, having dealt with undergraduates at the University of South Carolina, not a lot of them have seen the movie Gone with the Wind. And Uh, that may be a good thing. I guess growing up as a white Southerner, you know, I can, my granddad took me to see it when it when it came out again, reissued in the early '50s. Went to the downtown theater in Mobile and to, to see Gone with the Wind. You know, it was a, a big deal. But there is another book on the list, which was an award-winning movie, uh, and that's To Kill a Mockingbird, which portrays a very different South from Tobacco Road. Although there's some of those character, kind of characters in there. And, and they're marginalized, uh, or the the source of of all that's bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not all, but uh, it, they're the ones who actually do the the evil deeds and and are distrusted by the by the community, uh, who probably share some of the values of of those folks, but they do it in a more genteel way, which is a, a more perhaps a more insidious because less visible uh, kind of racism uh, mm-hmm. at Oh, well, I, I think. Um, a novel like To Kill a Mockingbird also, well, Tobacco Road would do this as well. When you talk about small town South, when you talk about relationships, when you talk about people interacting mm-hmm. with each other, you know, the, for example, um, after Atticus defends Tom Robinson mm-hmm. and the black folks in the community bring the food, or earlier on when the Cunninghams, who cannot pay during the Depression era, era with money, actually bring the, the nuts or uh, the the small uh, bunches of greens that they can Mm -hmm. uh, to repay deeds that have been uh, performed for them. So I think that there is, and that to some extent might be a kind of nostalgia as well, but it's, it's I would argue, a different kind of nostalgia and perhaps one that a larger percentage, a larger portion of the public can identify with because the sort of Margaret Mitchell plantation home south, it's not one that the majority of uh, folks nowadays would have been uh, had ancestors who were privy to, whereas something like Macom, Alabama, mm-hmm. is more on the radio, radar, perhaps, of a larger number of, of folks in the in the country. This is Walter Edgar's journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of my 2009 conversation with Trudier Harris and the late Noel Polk. The conversation was a preview of a debate on the topic, what was the most influential Southern novel of the 20th century, which aired on SCETV's Take on the South. This encore is a part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. Well, you know, I was just in another context dealing with, again, a colleague in, in movies, a small town America between the wars, you know, brings back to mind things like It's a Wonderful Life and community interaction. You know, that, that small town in Alabama certainly was no haven, but 
those small acts of kindness and neighborliness mm-hmm. and community that you mentioned, Trudy, are, uh, is something somebody in Indiana probably could relate to. Oh. It, it's it's a different South, uh, a, a, a kindlier South than than we had from from Caldwell and, and Faulkner and and others who are looking at those sorts of issues uh, similarly. What I what I really like about uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, what I like about what it does, is that it it draws on that old Gothic tradition, uh, uh, which posits uh, some kind of horrible secret in the in, in the family mansion or in in the house, and. Uh, uh, what it does is, is expose. I mean, it, this is Boo, uh, mm-hmm. who, who personifies all that's secret and mysterious and fearsome uh, in in the Southern uh, Gothic. And, and and what the novel does is is to allow that secret out to explain the secret that it's not incest or uh, any of those other kinds of, of things that we associate with the Gothic, but uh, he really is a kindly person who is very, very shy and who actually uh, saves uh, Scout and, and Jim from from a fate worse than, than death, as it were, uh, mm-hmm. pull, pulls them out. And I, I really like that because it it, uh, it suggests without preaching uh, that there those those secrets, uh, all of those secrets need to be explored, need to be uh, allowed out in. So it domesticates the Gothic. Very make, nicely, make very say. nicely put. Yes, <laughs> it, does. it does. Well, you it know, dehorrifies it somehow. Yeah, it dehorrifies it. It turns it into its own kind of innocence. And as you say, when Boo Radley is finally out and Scout sees him uh, and sees the consequences of that isolation on him for all those years, she's very sensitive to yes. that and very mm-hmm. sympathetic mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that's scary anymore at all. Right. Well, when the novel came out, and, and I, I have seen things you've written, Trudy, about, about it, and the fact is the African-American individuals are real characters in To Kill a Mockingbird. They're not cardboard stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, yes, there is a black household help within uh, Atticus Finch's household, but she's not a mammy. She is not a mammy. And not only is she not a mammy, but she does not speak in dialect in that household. Uh, when you think about some of the films out of the 1930s and the representations of uh, black female characters, especially the mammy characters, and it's like their world, their linguistic worlds are miles away from where the white characters are. And one of the distinctive things about To Kill a Mockingbird is that Calpurnia is somebody who knows how to code switch. She can speak one way in that house household with Scout and Atticus and Jim, and another way when she goes home to her own community and to the church. And the fact that Harper Lee recognized that and built in that trait, I think, is something quite different. And the same thing in terms of Tom Robinson and how he's portrayed. Here is a man who's not just guttural and oomphing and and making noises. Here is not somebody who... um, is afraid to the extent that he can't say, yes, uh, this young lady, this young white lady did invite me into the house. Uh, Yes, she did kiss me. Yes, she made the approaches. And we know the kind of pressure he's under from the community to say otherwise. And he stands up for that. And I think that's that's, uh, for himself as best he can under the circumstances. And I think that's pretty admirable. That's not so stereotypical. Although I have to admit that whereas you were taken to see Gone with the Wind, uh, I, I don't think that in my generation we were generally, um, as as teenagers, aware of Harper Lee and To Kill a Mark and Bird and dashing off to the movies to see that in mm-hmm. the same way. In the Birmingham in which you grew up. Tuscaloosa. Tuscaloosa, excuse mm-hmm. me. Um, if there were a theater that allowed you to go into it, you'd have been in the balcony. We did have one black theater in Tuscaloosa, and the fascinating thing about that is that they weren't going to bring uh, To Kill a Mockingbird or Gone with the Wind to that theater. We saw what the majority of American teenagers would have had access to in terms of westerns, Mm -hmm. in terms of newsreels, uh, in terms of cartoon, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things, for which we paid the handsome sum of like five Pepsi-Cola bottle tops to go to the movie on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And we we did not sit in the back of the So we, it was uh-huh. segregation mm-hmm. that enabled a certain level of, dare I say, dignity. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to sit in the balcony, but you were in a black segregated theater. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in Mobile, there were, I think there were two black theaters on the avenue, Jefferson Davis Avenue. It was just referred to as the avenue. 
But there was one theater, the Sanger Theater, had a balcony for African-American patrons. The rest of them were segregated. Yeah. So, and Noel, I forgot, where did you grow up? Picayune, Mississippi. Did you even have a movie theater in We Picayune? did. We actually had two of them for a while, both run by the same person. and, and uh, But a, a fairly wide selection mm-hmm. of, of um, um, popular movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I, I was stunned, actually, when, when um, the Defiant mm-hmm. Ones uh, showed that uh, uh, picture of the, the, the black and white man, Tony Curtis, and... I forget who, uh, escape, uh, handcuffed together, uh, and they have to make do, and they, uh, in, the, in the world they're trying to escape from, and, and they uh, become friends, of course, and yeah. there's a sacrifice, and it's, it's all uh, nicely redemptive and everything in ways that should have, should have made Mississippi mad, but there it was, right there in Picayune, Mississippi. Well, that they, it might not have made them mad because, look, there's still the glamour of Hollywood. <laughs> True. Did you have African-American patrons in those theaters? Then? Yes. So, was that uh, a balcony? Up in the types? balcony, yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And a separate entrance, too, around the corner. I don't know if, if about your students, Trudy, but I can, I can talk about things like this to my classes in American history now. And they, it, they just don't fathom the idea of the separate entrance, the balcony, the separate water fountains, the you know, it's it's just something that's so foreign to them. Yeah, when you talk about, well, when I speak of racial um, difficulties in the South, generally my students say, oh, Dr. Harris, that was in your time. That was, you'd sound like my grandmother. Uh, and they have this mistaken assumption that because they went to integrated mm-hmm. schools or attended integrated schools uh, and were friendly or friends with lots of uh, non-black students that we don't have um, a problem anymore. So, yeah, it's very difficult uh, to get them to see these kinds of things. But then you don't have to think just uh, from the time we were in school and our current students. I mean, think about the lives of people like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. And think about when the the movie um, Malcolm X came out. Mm. Some people were interpreting it as Malcolm 10. Well, the the South that is represented on this list, I think every book on the list has got some not just sometimes not just road bumps, but they've got the bridges blown up. Too. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, well, they have, and for most of the texts on the list, they're not worlds in which race is absent. No, it's... and it's it's central in almost all of those texts. Um, well, there are some that don't treat it directly. Um, but implicitly, it might be there. I'm thinking mm-hmm. specifically of Al- Alice Walker's The Color Purple, for mm-hmm. example. And in some ways, you could talk about that being um, an intra-within-African-American community mm-hmm. novel. Uh, but you could probably find along the edges some sense of, of that racial consideration. Mm-hmm. Um but it's it's central to most of the texts that are truly Southern novels and written by Southerners. Mm-hmm. I think there are some novels on that list that don't fit as comfortably into uh, the designation of the others. For example, Native Son, Invisible Man, and Beloved. Mm-hmm. It's surprising to some extent that they are on the list. Well, of course, right being a Southerner, but as you, but as you, you know, Native Son's set somewhere else. I mean, it's... Set in Chicago, and there's like a one-paragraph mention, perhaps, of the fact that these folks migrated from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's a clash of race in the south. I mean, in the north, in the mm-hmm. Chicago area. Yeah, uh, I think uh, black characters are conspicuously absent, pretty much, from all the King's Men. Mm-hmm. There's just there's just not much of a black presence or or concern, which is semi-surprising to me. And certainly, and from Deliverance, I. Who's made the list? Really, local talent. L- local, local talent. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of of local talent, I would have I would have gone with Julia Peterkin. Mm-hmm. It's surprising mm-hmm. to think that she won the Pulitzer Prize for literature in nineteen twenty eight, twenty nine. Somewhere the, there. The both. book was twenty eight, I think, and yeah. uh, Scarlet Sister Mary, and I think the prize was in twenty nine. Yeah, Scarlet Sister Mary. I mean, that's yeah. just that's just a classic sort of black white South thing when you think about that, and, you, and it's also a great testament to what happens to books that win the Pulitzer Prize mm. uh, that go off reading lists or. Mm-hmm. Off teaching lists and are just generally forgotten. Right. When I mention that text these days, nobody's, nobody's ever right. heard of it, and yeah. certainly nobody's read it. Well, what is interesting, though, in anthropological circles, she is 
having something of a renaissance right. based upon, since all of her writing pretty much is based upon experience and observation. Yeah. I would say that it, it disappeared. I mean, there was, a, there was a, a book that was transformed into sort of into a Broadway production, which was an absolute disaster. Sarah Bernhardt in blackface. I yes. <laughs> By the way, Miss Peterkin was very irate that they she wanted a black cast. Yes. But, you know, she'd sold the rights. So and of course, that it didn't it didn't last very long on Broadway. Mm. Let's look at the looming figure. Noel, this author you studied most of your life. That's that's William Faulkner. There are two of his books on the list, uh, Absalom, Absalom and Sound and the Fury. He started off with Sand and the Fury, and of course, the, the rest of that is signifying nothing. What was he trying to do? He, he set about to do what uh, Wallace Stevens described in, in his poem uh, of modern poetry. He, he set about to create a new stage uh, and, a, and a figure, find a new language for talking about things that the traditional narrative and traditional language just simply were not capable of, of, of describing adequately. And this, this uh, problem increased as the 20th century uh, grew older and older. And the sort of question writers of his generation were, were facing was how does, how does traditional language, traditional narrative uh, help us say something worthy of things like racism, like the Civil War, like lynching, uh, genocide, the Holocaust, all of, all of these horrible things, uh, which to a certain extent, once you, once you try to put them in traditional language, about the best you can come up with is a kind of banal, how awful. And, and that doesn't seem adequate to help us experience or understand the outrage uh, that, that those kinds of things caused in the 20th century. I think the fact that you have two Faulkner novels on uh, the list is a testament to the influence of the academy. We sometimes think that uh, academics don't have very much influence out there in the real world at all. Uh, But having had scores of generations of students read Faulkner, be required to read Faulkner, and have him on uh, lists for English majors, on lists for students who are getting master's degrees uh, and who are doing doctoral examinations, um, is a testament to this, this, this appeal that, that he has in terms of treating subjects that have st- historically been uh, crucial to the South, but also the way in which uh, he treats those mm-hmm. subjects and the way in which students and scholars are challenged to enter into those texts. And I think um, all those things have influenced his staying power um, in the academy. Once he was rediscovered, because for a while there, um, weren't the majority of his books out of print? In in the late 40s, this is true. He, he went for actually seven years without publishing a book for the first time in, in uh, a decade and a half. Uh, and I, I, I basically agree with you, except that uh, his influence on non-American readers, his influence throughout the world, uh, the, the French, for example, began reading and translating him big time in the, in the 30s. And he was a, a, a central figure in the, the, the French uh, Renaissance. He was read by a lot of, the, a lot of folks in, in that uh, the French resistance, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and, and uh, Albert Camus. Uh, read him and brought him out of that experience uh, in order and, and helped to, to create uh, probably the uh, uh, most profound philosophy of the middle 20th century, existentialism, as, as they, uh, they described it and, and wrote about it. And the, the Latin American writers, Carlos Fuentes and, and Gabriel yes. Garcia Marquez, were reading him and translating him and writing learned essays about him uh, in, in reviews uh, a good deal before he actually got adopted by the academy in this country. And that, that's <clears throat> really a commentary on what happens in a lot of instances in terms of Europeans valuing our artists mm-hmm. um, and writers much sooner than than we do. Um, even Shakespearean actors mm-hmm. who played in Poland and who were so well-received there 
American Shakespearean actors before they were recognized in the United States. Uh, and once it seems that that stamp of approval from across the water sometimes get placed on uh, writers or artists in the United States, then, then we fall into line. Uh, but on the other hand, I guess it's good that we fell into line in this instance. <laughs> this is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of my 2009 conversation with Trudier Harris and the late Noel Polk. The conversation was a preview of a debate on the topic, what was the most influential Southern novel of the 20th century, which aired on SCETV's Take on the South. This encore is a part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. There, there are uh, curious uh, scholarly responses to all that. Uh, there, there are plenty of people who will allow scholars to write about Moby Dick without ever having been on a whaling ship. But uh, especially in the, the early days of, of Faulkner, the Faulkner boom in the 60s and, and 70s, uh, there were people uh, outside of the South who uh, didn't think they could write about Faulkner without actually visiting the South. And that most often came to spending a weekend in Atlanta or, or some <laughs> Birmingham or something ridiculous <laughs> like that. Uh, but they're, they're, the South is apparently a more exotic place than a whaling ship. Uh, and, and so there, there was some kind of need to e- e- explore it on, it on its own. People felt you couldn't understand Faulkner unless you actually went to Oxford. Which is, it's, it's really strange. It's, it sounds like the same kind of arguments that people were making in the, in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s about studying African-American literature. Like, how can I write about uh, a black writer? I'm not black. Well, Dag, for how many centuries have you been writing about Shakespeare? You <laughs> exactly. ain't British either, but exactly. you've been doing that. Um, so it's, it's sort of a, a false qualification that, that people think you need or prerequisite in order to get into this. And, and I think, you know, as long as scholars have their interpretive powers, I mean, that's what we rely on, you know, our minds to give us access to these things. And what, what the, the French and the foreigners uh, did was precisely to recognize that, uh, recognize Faulkner's mind at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many of the reviewers, uh, for lots of political reasons, assuming that uh, if something that extraordinary came out of Mississippi, that there was something freakish about it, that, uh, <laughs> that uh, you know, no, but no good could come out of Mississippi. And so they, they had to explain it somehow. Edmund Wilson reviewed uh, Intruder in the Dust oh, yeah. by, by way of saying, well, this, this is, uh, it's, it's a fair for a guy from Mississippi, but he would have been a lot better novelist uh, if he had spent more time in New York talking to people like me, like Edmund Wilson. Yeah, so Faulkner is uh, far ahead of his, his critics then and, in terms of what he's capable of doing and achieving then. Yes, absolutely. And, and there, there's always been a, a sense in talking about Southern literature, this whole notion of, of place and the significance of place, uh, which comes out of Eudora Welty, who never said that place was uh, any more than one of the, the angels that, that uh, watch over uh, fiction. Um, there was some kind of, of sense that if a Southern writer wasn't sitting barefooted with his or her feet actually on the Mississippi mud, that, that they couldn't write. They we're back to Tobacco Road again. Exactly. We're back to back Tobacco Road. Exactly. <laughs> well, we're back to generalized stereotypes about exactly. the South. Exactly, yes. Uh, yes. Precisely. But you mentioned the Europeans, and I've done a lot of corresponding with our, our, our colleagues at Bonn and, mm-hmm. and Vienna, mm-hmm. uh, Odensee, and there the American Studies programs, the literary portions of those are basically Southern literature. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Uh, Lothar uh, Heunighausen at the University of Bonn, who's just yes. retired, was a Faulkner scholar. Uh, Jan Gretland is still active in contemporary Southern writers at, at Odense. Mm-hmm. And Waldemar Zakarowitz at the University of Vienna is into early 20th century Southern writing. And, and they're very strong programs. And, and they're now discovering Eudora Welty, who is, who is not on that list, but, but who is an extraordinary writer, and we're just now discovering how extraordinary. She's one of Gretland's favorites mm-hmm. right now. Yes. Yeah, we had a Polish scholar coming over, who came over to Chapel Hill a few years ago, uh, who was a Eudora Welty um, person, very much interested in her. Also, you have to, I think, in part put that in the context of the generalized uh, interest in a global South or in globalization mm-hmm. uh, period, but especially the global South. Uh, and if you think about what part of the country 
uh, fascinates of the of the United States fascinates people from the outside. As you were saying earlier, as one of you said earlier, this whole exotic thing mm-hmm. and the exoticism that's there. And why haven't you people ever reconciled all of these strange trends of things that happen in the South and this history that you find so burdensome? Uh, why haven't you reconciled that in some way? So I'm not sure that I could put my finger exactly on what the fascination is, but I agree that scholars throughout the world have had the, this fascination. Well, I, I think you, you said the magic word, exotic. I have actually had colleagues from Europe talk about, and particularly when we've had them over here to South Carolina, they, they think South Carolina is especially exotic, much more so than Mississippi, because they they, they, have, <laughs> they they think about the Mississippi mud. But, you know, you've got places like Charleston and Beaufort, and they're just, well, they're certainly more Caribbean. You know, we are the link with a different world than most of the rest of the country. But part of the interest is from countries uh, in in what we call the the post colonial world, uh, people who are coming out from under o- oppressors. Well, one of the interests that the the Latin American writers had uh, in in Faulkner was a a kind of shared history or or, or uh, symmetrical history uh, with with the American South, uh, Japanese. Uh, people when Faulkner visited there in, in the mid-50s suggested that one of the reasons they were interested in in uh, his work uh, was that they had just recently been defeated uh, in, in a war. And, and Faulkner wrote about uh, responses to defeat and, and so forth. So I, I think that there's a kind of shared history uh, in, in a lot of these countries of, of war and defeat, famine and all these things that, that Faulkner writes about uh, that renders him, at least to them, less exotic than than simply uh, central, as, as Carlos Fuentes said about Faulkner. He's, okay. he's essential to us because he showed us how to write our way through the, the baggage of custom and language that our, our oppressors had, had handed to us for these generations mm-hmm. and um, liberated us intellectually, spiritually, and, and if not politically, but gave them uh, a, a way of talking about their history that was not controlled by the, the oppressor's language. But that's really interesting, though, because <laughs> and when you think about Faulkner and his position in the American South and oppression or oppressors, he would be identified with one of the oppressors, would he not, in this in in this case, and so if he's the one who's giving them that entree into all of that, it's a fascinating kind of. Well, I, I think that that they recognized that he was in fact not uh, through his books that he was not one of the oppressors. That mm-hmm. that he was uh, he understood history as a construct uh, that is always written in favor of of uh, the, the the oppressor, uh, and he was teaching us, whether we knew it or not, how to uh, get around that somehow and, and, and talk about how things really are so that we don't accept mm-hmm. history as being uh, a, a coherent history, as being a capital T truth that we must uh, have allegiance to. So I, I think they recognized him as really subversive in ways that, that, that we did not. Uh, American critics continued to think about Faulkner as, as uh, rewriting, uh, perhaps with slightly better language, uh, Erskine Caldwell. And that, that simply, I mean, that simply was not true. And the Europeans especially recognized that. Well, one thing I'm already struck by in, in reading Faulkner when you talk about people, you mentioned earlier how folks said, oh, gee, how could he possibly have come out of the South mm-hmm. uh, with what he's doing? So um, there must be something special or different or whatever. Um, and I just, I've been to his, his home in Oxford, Mississippi, and looked at all the writings on the walls. And I'm always um, struck by the, how he managed to keep all of those bits of any narrative in his head as he was putting the books together. And especially in something like Absalom. Absalom, mm-hmm. I mean, how many ways can you look at a blackbird? Uh, because that story <laughs> is fairly simple. If you just said, okay, this happened, that happened, that here are the facts of the history. Uh, and then you start putting the pieces together. This person knows this. This person knows that. This person maybe knows a little bit. Uh, when is this fact going to be revealed? What's the relationship here? And it goes on and on and on. So I have to respect that. It's incredible. It, it, it was incredible. And, and uh, he actually uh, put Absalom away uh, for about six months and wrote a novel called Pylon, 
in in between. He said Absalom had become inchoate, uh, <laughs> even for even for him. And he, he wrote a very modern novel in in between, and then was able to come back and, and finish Absalom. And does anybody remember Pylon? <clears throat> yes, very Probably very not. They very, remember it, but not read. It. Well, uh, the the French have been interested in Pylon, and so that that gives me some sense that there may be more there than than American critics have have been able to to see. Well, Noel, when you were still teaching it uh, in Mississippi, of the 20 books on, our, on this list that is out there for people to take a gander at, how many of those were on your required reading list for your students? For my Southern Lit class, yeah. I would start off with Wright's um, uh, Black Boy and uh, Eudora Welty's One Writer's Beginnings. To uh, to talk about, I tried to imagine that they they were in Jackson for a lot of the same time, several mm-hmm. years early on. I, I tried to get my students to imagine them uh, on Capitol Street uh, meeting each other, mm-hmm. uh, and, and what kinds of things might be going on. Whether mm-hmm. Richard and his mother would have gotten into the got off the sidewalk or something to to, to help them pass. Uh, but then I would I would go to uh, the, the last gentleman, Walker Percy. Mm-hmm. Um, several of the, several of the books that are that are on that list, Kane in, okay. in my twentieth century class. No, that's that's interesting that you include Kane. No, it, it really is because when you think about influence, however we we interpret influence, um, and you think about a book like Kane, um, where do you trace that trajectory of influence if if you do? Right. Somebody put it on the list. I think somebody put that on the list along with Native Son and Beloved and Invisible mm-hmm. Man. Um, because they felt as if in the 21st century we should have at least some representative African-American texts on there. I think you can understand much more why Their Eyes Watching God is on or The the Color Purple. Uh, But Cain, it gets to be kind of um, questionable as to what people might have been thinking, and certainly with Native Son and Invisible Man. Yeah, with with Kane, I, I put it on there because I, I teach uh, the 20th century lit course, uh, American lit course, as a uh, a course in narrative rather than in the 20th century novel, and so I'm interested in the the modernist notion of the world as as fragmented. Yes, that so works well. So as I lay dying, uh, go down Moses uh, and Sherwood Anderson's uh, Winesburg, Winesburg as, and, yeah. and Eudora Welty's the, the Golden Apples as as being sort of a, a, an attempt to show the world world as it fragments out from our own experience mm-hmm. of it, uh, rather than as a coherent whole, uh, which is what you get in, in more traditional narratives. But I still, want to, I still want to think about Invisible Man and why that could remotely be considered a Southern novel. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are insistent about Invisible Man, and you say, okay, maybe the first That's couple right. of chapters right. uh, would fit, and then he takes off to New York. But on the other hand, Raphael was born in Oklahoma. Right. Uh, well, Southern Living would say that's part of the sound. <laughs> <laughs> they, they would, but, but what, also what I like to point out is that Sherwood Anderson uh, spent about, what, 25 or 30 years in, in Virginia and wrote a number of books there. He, mm-hmm. uh, but nobody, nobody wants to talk about him as a Southern as writer. As a Southern writer. And Toni Morrison certainly has uh, ancestral roots in the South with her right. uh, parents having come from Georgia and Alabama, if I remember correctly. Uh, but... You know, she grew up in Lorain, Ohio. And certainly, I think you can make a better case for beloved fitting uh, with this focus on slavery and the aftermaths of slavery mm-hmm. and black-white relationships. But um, Invisible Man, it's hard. This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is a rebroadcast of my 2009 conversation with Trudier Harris and the late Noel Polk. The conversation was a preview of a debate on the topic, what was the most influential Southern novel of the 20th century, which aired on SCETV's Take on the South. This encore is a part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. Well, there's an interesting South kind of story about Gene Toomer, and that is for a little over a year, he was an out-of-town member of the South Carolina Poetry Society in the 1920s. And they mm-hmm. published an annual yearbook, and they asked members to send in their, uh, what they, you know, they had published anything. That was when the all-white Poetry Society in Charleston realized that they had an African-American member from Washington, <laughs> D.C. Um, he, he, was not, he was not taken from the rolls, but he was also not sent uh, a renewal. 
But that's also a commentary on this whole issue of southernness and southern lit yes. and all of that. Uh, because if you look at photographs of Gene Toomer, you're looking at a white man. Well, that was one of yeah, that was one of his great struggles. Yes. And, you know, a mixed race person uh, who just happened to be claimed as Negro. And it is a fascinating commentary on this whole history. And I was thinking specifically about um, just having reread uh, Faulkner's Delta Autumn and the very, very end of that narrative uh, when Isaac McCaslin encounters the, the young girl, I mean, the young woman who's had the, the mixed race child. And she looks absolutely white. Uh, and then he immediately recognizes, because her mother takes in washing, oh, my God, she's not white, and labels her uh, accordingly. And that's one of the issues that so many of these texts take up, and that is this whole idea of, of, of racial mixture in the South and what constitutes whiteness, what constitutes blackness, and why it matters in terms of, of caste and, and class. So Toomer should not have been classified as a black person. Why should he have been classified as black any more than he? Was uh, could have been classified as white mm -hmm. until just recently. Uh, the the mixed race, thanks to Joe Christmas, uh, largely and and others, of course, uh, has has been a a problem, a kind of defining problem of of uh, racial discourse. Uh, and I wonder what you think of of uh, Natasha Trethewey, who who is uh, who instead of being ashamed of it or worried about it or uh, fixated on it, glories in in uh, being mixed blood. I, I, it's interesting that you should mention that because my graduate seminar just did Native Guard uh -huh. uh, two weeks ago, and I brought photographs of Natasha uh, to class. I met her about about five years ago, I guess, in Birmingham, Alabama. And you're correct. I mean, she talks about, okay, he, my my white father, my black mother, and many of the poems um, in Native God have to do with her attitudes towards the South, and right. specifically towards Mississippi, right. where she says this land that called her, uh, you know, a half-breed and a whole bunch of other names, but she also says this land of Magnolios, this land where they'll bury me. Right. And the claiming uh, of that ancestry. And I think, um, as you point out, in the 21st century, one can be comfortable in doing that because the African-American black part of it is not so stigmatized right. as it was when Gene Toomer mm -hmm. uh, was around in the 1920s and, and thereafter. And that as we recognize again, all the migration into the South, uh, all the different racial ethnic groups in the South, whether they're the Melungeons or the Native Americans or the Chinese in Mississippi or the Japanese, various else, uh, other places, in addition to uh, all the traditional strands of black and white. Then, mm. you know. and of course, part of that Gene Tumor story, looking back at the list, is his Washington had become segregated largely because of a book written on this list, The Klansman, which was turned into mm -hmm. the movie Birth of a Nation, mm -hmm. and Woodrow Wilson deciding it was time to segregate the nation's capital. Yeah. Until Wilson, public facilities in the nation's capital were by law open, open to everybody. Open to everybody. Um, um, mm. You know. let, let me go back to Natasha Trethewey for just a minute and, and ask ask you, true to your. Uh, Would you please identify her for our listeners who might not? Natasha Trethewey won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 2007 with a volume called Native Guard. She was born in Mississippi uh, and is now the Phyllis Wheatley Distinguished Professor of Poetry at Emory University. Right. I was going to ask you if, if you if, if there are others uh, like her who who are forming a cadre of folks who are going to influence uh, the the future of literature. I, okay. I I don't have names that I can provide, mm -hmm. but what is happening now in terms of African American literary creativity, or if we should call it that, given uh, Natasha, what we were just talking about, is a group of folks who identify themselves as being cultural mulattoes. 
Really? Yes. And these folks then assert that they can draw on any traditions. They will embrace anything and incorporate anything into their works that they want. And they don't feel as if they must bear the burden of race or when they treat race, that is not a burden uh, for them in the way that it might have been for their ancestors. Because if you uh, consider Natasha's second volume, The Loxophilia, which is is based on... um, the photographs uh, that this photographer took of prostitutes in New Orleans. Uh, in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And she looked at one of these photographs and said, oh, my, look at that, the little frown between her eyes. Look at this woman who is visibly white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what would the life of this person have been like? But all of these prostitutes were mixed race, mm-hmm. women who were visibly white, but who were known legally to be black. And so could be used um, in these ways. And and then, of course, I mean, just as uh, Mr. Plessy from Louisiana was visibly white, but was labeled by the Louisiana by Louisiana law as African American. Isn't it just crazy how far people went back in those days to find a little drop, the mighty drop of black blood, so that they could label Mm -hmm. folks in this direction? What has been important to to whites is that difference. What the ending of Absalom, Absalom, I think, suggests is that we are terrified. I mean, uh, you, would, you would think that the argument there that, that uh, Shreve makes at the end is that uh, one of these days uh, difference is going to be ironed out. And so that even the whitest person will one day look at you and say, I uh, come to you, I have sprung from the loins of African kings. And I think that's what he's actually saying. Okay. And that's what terrifies uh, Quentin is that we're all got, got that, that blood. And you would think that uh, having that difference uh, ironed out and taken away would simplify things and make it all all right. You would think. I mean, that's what Gene Toomer thought. And then some of the essays he wrote that one day there's going to be such an intermarriage and intermixture that this concern or these concerns about race will just disappear. We'll all just be American. Mm -hmm. And even Charles Chestnut, to some extent, uh, was hopeful of that. Mm -hmm. But obviously, that's not been the case. But that's why Quentin is so terrified, I think, at the end of Absolutely. I don't hate it. I don't. I don't hate it. Yeah. Desperate attempt. I had a colleague suggest, let's everybody get a DNA test, then we'll find out who's kin to whom. (laughs) Uh, And, of course, South Carolinians have begun exploring that, whether it's um, Edward Ball, Slaves in the Family. That was just the first of a number of Mm -hmm. such efforts. Felicia Furman, who is descended from William Gilmore Sims, Mm -hmm. has been doing the same thing with the black and white individuals who've lived on the Sims plantation down there in Hmm. uh, the low country. I worked with Felicia on a a project. She did a film. One of the Sims family lore is that they did not ever go to the quarters. You know, that was one of William Gilmore Sims' rules. We know he did not purchase any slaves after 1850. Well, in the 1850 census, the slaves are all listed. But in the 1860 census, they're five mulattoes. And if they didn't purchase any, where <laughs> did they come from? Exactly. Now, there were nephews and what have you. Uh, I'm not saying that. I'm certainly not saying that Sims himself. But the, the, the story was that this never happened. Well, obviously, it, it did. did. It, it did. did. And, and isn't that, going back to what we mentioned way, way earlier, uh, exoticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's forbidden becomes attractive. We have unfortunately run out of time. Let's, let's have sort of a, a last word, if you will, on defining... Influence, Noel, you look at influence in terms of influence on other writers. You mentioned particularly those in Latin America. Yeah, I, I think that, that Faulkner's influence uh, on, on other writers uh, is, is essential to 20th century uh, literature worldwide yeah. for technical reasons and, and political and historical reasons. Okay. And, and Trudy, you looked at, at uh, influence more in a broader cultural sense, yes. books, books being taught. Red, red. Um, the and that involves an international component as well of how widely the books get out, uh, what they do, especially outside the South, in terms of changing perceptions people may have of the South. Mm-hmm. And I think if we can find a text that does that kind of work and can be documented doing that kind of work, then that's um, a different kind of influence that's uh, probably more outside the academy, mm-hmm. but I think it's it's just as significant. All right. Well. Trudia Harris and Noel Pope, thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. Thanks. It's been fun. 
This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It's good to have Professor Noel Polk and Professor Trudier Harris in the studio, but also wonderful the way the conversation went. When you deal with the American South and you deal with fiction or history, there are certain central questions that are always going to be there. We went from talking about Southern fiction to contemporary Southern poetry and the phrase that Professor Harris used, individuals who now claim to be cultural mulattoes, drawing on all aspects of the region's culture. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Today's program was a rebroadcast of my 2009 conversation with Trudier Harris and the late Noel Polk. The conversation was a preview of a debate on the topic, what was the most influential Southern novel of the 20th century, which aired on SCETV's Take on the South. This encore is part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.